We started a new series a couple weeks ago from the book of 1 Timothy, so I'd invite you all to grab a Bible and open it up to the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, if you're like me, uh, some, we have a lot of newer people each week, and back in college when I started going back to church, I didn't know my way around the Bible. So hey, don't be ashamed to look in the table of contents and find where 1 Timothy is. Just reach for a Bible, open it up, 1 Timothy chapter 1. The series is called The Front Lines of Faith. The book is all about finding out what's meaningful and worth fighting for in God's church, what we believe and how we behave. Uh, but let me begin by mentioning this, because the, the uh, sermon title today is uh, Before and After, Then and Now. Um, we love to see makeovers, don't we? We love to see makeover programs. We love to see how if you change someone's haircut or if you change someone's wardrobe or if you change someone's uh, whatever, then they become almost a new person. Check this out. This is from uh, What Not to Wear. You've got the girl on the left, and it's like, where did she get those clothes? And then on the right, look what they did to her. You know? and then, uh, or, hey, if you watch the right infomercial and get the right piece of exercise equipment, hey, there's you on the left, and watch out, because in just two weeks, that could be you on the right. <laughs> we're, we're kind of fascinated when it comes to Makeover, which is why we love the before and the after pictures. We love the then, we love the now, but a lot of those focus primarily on external things. Change what they wear, change their haircut, change their makeup, change external, external, external. But do you know the greatest thing that could ever be changed about you is actually not visible, it's internal um, and it's spiritual. There is such a thing as a spiritual makeover. There is a before picture of you and of me spiritually before God does something to change that. And there's an after picture of what God does to change us. That's true of every person because the Bible teaches that we are born apart from God and against God even if we're born in the church. And all of our lives, God is trying to show us, hey, hey, Chapter 1 of your story is the before picture, but I'd like to do something to make you a different person and give you a new life. Today we're going to see the spiritual makeover of a man named Paul. The Apostle Paul will hear how he left his life of sin, how he became one of the greatest figures in the Bible. He's going to first tell us about his before picture and who he was. Then he's going to show us his after picture and who God made him. And listen, here's what I want you to do. Ask yourself this question. Could you share with me your before and after story? Your spiritual story of here was me before Christ, here was what God did to me. Could you share that with me? Because at the end of the sermon, I'm going to give you a chance to write out your story, and then we're going to give a chance for some of you to come up front and to share it with the church so we can be encouraged. Let's pray right now, and then we'll hear about Paul's story in the Scripture. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that while you're honest with us about our need while you show us what needs to be changed, we thank you that then you go to work and you don't leave us alone stranded in our sin. Thank you, Jesus, that you are willing to transform us. Show us through the man Paul, show us through this apostle who we are and how you will change us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. Are you there? 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. It says this, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. 
but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Wow. He begins by thanking Christ because of what Christ has done in his life. But listen, he's honest. He says, formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Hey, write this down in your notes, in your bulletin. He's sharing his story. Before Christ, I stood against God and apart from God. Before Christ, I stood against God and apart from God. That was true of him. That's true of me. Now he's thankful, though. He says, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus. He's being thankful to Jesus. Uh, Often in our world, we see people just so passively say thank you to God, right? Thank you for these chicken nuggets, you know. Thank you that I made this field goal or that I won this award. Just, it's like this trite, impassing, meaningless, thanks God, right? Here's some pictures of athletes just after they get the job done. They're like, oh, God must be a fan of me. Yeah. Why don't they do that when they miss? I want to see a field goal kicker when he misses go, you're still amazing. I'm not. <laughs> here's, a, or here's another, you know, more athletes. There's, you know, thanks for getting the ball over the plate. Uh, help me control my temper next time. But thanks for getting the ball over the plate. Uh, what about actors and actresses, right? Here's an actor. Hey, I just made like <laughs> a really despicable movie featuring many sinful things. But thanks for being a fan. You must love me. I mean, it's pathetic to see how people thank God and when they thank God. Um, the truth is we need to thank him more. Too often when life is going well, we congratulate ourselves. We don't thank him. And uh, too often when life is going poorly, we blame him, right, and not ourselves. It's right to be grateful, uh, not just in passing, and it's right to be grateful for the right things. So what is Paul grateful for? Well, he says, I thank him who has given me strength. He lists three things he's thankful for. He's given me strength. Whenever that word for strength comes up in the New Testament, it doesn't just mean like, he made me Hercules. It's not physical strength. It's spiritual strength. And it's the kind of strength that you need to be useful to God, to endure persecution, and to fulfill your purpose God has for you. So when when he says, I thank God for giving me strength, it's the kind of strength that makes him useful to God. I thank Jesus for making me spiritually useful to God. He's thankful for that. He's also thankful because it says he has judged me faithful. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that Jesus looked down and he was like, there's a guy who's going to get the job done. He didn't judge him faithful because there was something innately in him that was praiseworthy. In fact, Christ judged him faithful from the beginning, giving him a job to do. And Paul wants to make the point that he did not deserve that. Nothing about his life up to that point made him capable of being a faithful servant of Christ. Therefore, it's grace. I thank him because he judged me faithful even when I didn't deserve to be that, even when I wasn't that. He gave me strength. He judged me faithful. And then he appointed me to his service. He started using me. He started getting me to do things and to reach people. and Wow, I'm so grateful for that. Now, it's kind of weird. We have to pause for a moment just to recognize that he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus the Lord. He, he's thanking a dead guy 
for doing something in his life. If you took a Gallup poll back then and went around Rome, the Roman Empire, who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? By the time this letter was written, Jesus had been dead for over 30 years. All right? And the vast majority of people back then would have just thought that Christ, oh, wasn't he that like guy who was killed because he was kind of a criminal? I mean, didn't, didn't Rome kill him because he was kind of a criminal? He's that dead guy. And here Paul shows up and he's like, I thank Christ Jesus for all he's done in my life. Huh? That dead criminal? It would be the same as if somebody got up like in your union meeting and he was like, I'd like to thank Jimmy Hoffa Sr. for what he's meant to me over the past 30 years and how he's personally showed me. What? That dead guy who was kind of shady? What are you doing talking about him? That would be the way that when people first heard Paul say it, they'd be like, you're talking about a dead guy. See, but Paul believed he was alive. And if you believe he's alive, then it's profound. But if you don't believe he's alive, then it's one of the most foolish things you've ever heard. I'd like to thank the dead criminal for putting me into his service. Before Christ, I stood against God and apart from God. He describes his former way of life, his before picture. He describes it by saying this, I was a blasphemer. Blasphemy means to slanderously defame God. To slanderously defame God. Meaning what he was saying was defaming a holy God. Uh, Have you ever had people say things about you that are untrue? Have you had people say things about you behind your back to your face that are flat out dead wrong? And do you know the feelings Do you know the feelings that that caused you when you said things that were wrong, when someone said things that were wrong and slanderous about you? That's blasphemy against God. And it's not a light sin. To blaspheme a holy God is a serious sin. And Paul said, that was me. I was saying wrong things about God. He says, I was a persecutor. What does that mean? It means he brought Christians to trial. He killed and imprisoned them. He was in a raging fury. He was a persecutor. All right, so, uh, hey, everyone, let's pretend that we're in this Jewish congregation back in the first century. Trudy here is going door to door telling people about her new Christian faith. Uh, I'd really like to put her to death. Uh, All in favor? I need one guy to shout out really loud, aye. All in favor? All right, Apostle Paul, he's got a second. All right, let's, uh, that, that was him before, casting his vote against the Christians who were being brought to trial. Aye! I mean, you have to understand who Paul really was. If he lived today in his spare time, after his long day, he'd go home, he'd make a bag of microwave popcorn, and he'd sit down and watch ISIS videos until until he had enough because he loved persecuting Christians. The blood of the very first Christians was on his hands. He was a monster. This is his before picture. I was a blasphemer in what I said. I was a persecutor in how I treated the church. He said elsewhere he acted in a raging fury. He interrogated people and forced them to say things that would get them killed. And then he says, I was an insolent opponent, uh, meaning he was a violent, cruel aggressor. Listen, you don't know Paul unless the thought of him entering this room chills you to the bone. 
And only the hope that Jesus changed him keeps you from running in terror. That's who this guy was. This is his before picture. He's showing us his before picture. Do you have a before picture? You do. Everyone does. I've got a before picture. I didn't start truly asking these major questions about Christ or faith or religion until I was in college. So here's a picture of me before I was even a Christian. This is me at medieval times. But, but there's me. I, I was the long-haired, drug-doing. I was a thief. I was, uh, I was blasphemous. I was, uh, I mean, corrupt. I was, I was a, a drummer in a heavy metal band going in the wrong direction. And the bass player in my metal band invited me to church. Doesn't that look like a future pastor? Yeah. That's my before picture. And I thought I was a pretty good guy. If you asked me if I was going to heaven for a long time, I'd probably say, yeah. But then there came a crisis. Because my buddy invited me to church. I started hearing what the Bible had to say. That I was born with a sin problem I couldn't fix. And that God's judgment was coming. And that I needed a Savior. I started hearing this and it gave me this wake-up call to the reality of my own sin. I saw my own before picture for the first time. And I realized that God needed to change me. That was in college. Well, the Apostle Paul said, before Christ, I stood against God and apart from God. Here's the next thing you can write down. But because of Christ, I became a new person. Because of Christ, I became a new person. Look at verse 13. Though formerly... I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Look back at verse 13. It says, but I received mercy. Mercy. Mercy means God gives you what you don't... uh, No, I'm sorry. Mercy means God doesn't give you what you deserve. He spares you from the full outpouring of his judgment because he's being merciful. He's preventing the full force of his judgment from falling upon you because of his mercy. Because of his mercy, Paul was changed. And it says, because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. Hey, then I was violent, ignorant, sinful, and unbelieving. Now I'm faithful, loving, serving God, and I'm made new. Then I was ignorant. What does that mean? It means he really sincerely thought that what he was doing was pleasing God. All right, follow me. He really thought, because of his Jewish faith, that Christ was an imposter. He really believed that Christians were deceived and were hurting the nation. He truly, to the depth of his own soul, thought that as he was killing Christians, God was happy with him. He sincerely believed that. And he's showing how you can be, how I can be sincerely wrong. He's like, listen, I wasn't like, I wasn't like doing this knowing that God was, I thought God, I thought I was doing God a solid by burying these Christians. I was truly ignorant. Sometimes when I talk to people and I, uh, I bring up ideas like other religions or what people believe, someone will say to me, well, you can believe other things, but as long as you truly believe it then, it, then it's okay. Like, God will allow that, as long as you truly believe it. As if sincerity can save you. But what we observe here is actually 
that sincerely believing the wrong thing can't save you. God will not accept anyone who believes wrong things just because they truly believed it. In fact, if you think that, you're unaware of the enemy's tactic because Satan is called the father of lies. Meaning it's his work that produces true, sincere belief in false truth claims in the heart. That's his work. That's not anything God will bless. It's not anything God produces. And the Apostle Paul truly believed that his actions were making God's day. He was ignorant. He was also unbelieving. He he was aware of the claims of Christ, but he simply rejected it. It's because he stood against God and apart from God that he needed this mercy that God would give him, and then Christ would make him a new person. Paul's sharing his before and his after story, and right in the middle he gets this thing called mercy where God doesn't give him the judgment that he deserves. That's what transforms him. Do you have a before and an after story? Um, It's not every week that you get to meet a a starting NFL running back, is it? So earlier this week, I got a call from Mark Hobson from CSP. We partner with them, love them a lot. He said, hey, I've got this former NFL running back, played from 2002 through 2005 on the Cleveland Browns. You want to meet him? I was like, sure, why not? Wait, did he beat the Bears? All right, I'll, I'll, all right, I'll meet him. So he came, he came in, and he was speaking in local high schools, and, uh, and so he came here. And on Wednesday night, he was upstairs. He talked to several Trinity students and to some of, our, uh, some of our students. So William Green is his name. I didn't know anything about him, so I looked up his story. William's story is this. He was raised in the church. He was great, very athletic, but his mother and his father both died when he was a teenager. So he got incredibly angry with God and he turned away. In fact, he told his brother and sister, one day I'm going to make the NFL and that's going to fix all of our problems. He told them that. Well, he did. Top of his class in high school, rose to the top in college, first round draft pick 2002. First round draft pick, selected by the Cleveland Browns to be a starting running back. Played 10 games, rushed for 900 yards, several touchdowns, had an amazing first year. In fact, the Cleveland Browns hadn't been to the playoffs in like forever And they were playing, I think it was the Falcons, and it was their last regular season game they had to win to advance to the wild card. Check it out. They handed the ball off to William Green. Second down, down, they give it to Green. Green, stutter step, he's through. First down, 40, 45, 50, 45, 40. Run, William, run. 20, 15, 10, 5, touchdown. (laughs) We've been waiting for it. To break the big one, but he saves it for the right time. 64 yards! A stadium full of people shouting his name. It's what he had dreamt about his whole life. It's the thing he thought would fix all of his problems. But it didn't. And at the end of his first year, He was going down a wrong path and his private life was messed up. His second year was a train wreck. He got arrested for DUIs, drug abuse, got into fights with his fiance, was suspended. His career fizzled. One night after he was out partying until late, he came home and his wife called him out. Said, William, when are you going to stop living for yourself and start living for God? You're mad at him and you won't even give him a chance. And, and he was crushed. He knew it was true. And he repented and he gave his life to Christ and he became a believer. 
The rest of his career was nothing. The Browns eventually just wanted to get rid of him. His dream died. It didn't deliver what it was supposed to deliver. But it's at that moment where all of his dreams came crashing down that Christ came in and gave him what he truly longed for, which is a fresh start. Now, here's some pictures. Now, William Green travels around. He goes into public schools. He talks about drug abuse, bullying. And then um, when he can, if there's Christian clubs or he stops by churches or big events, conferences, he'll talk to people about the dreams that can't fulfill you and help you and how Christ truly can. This is a former, former starting running back who has a before story. And now he has an after story. It's glorious. Christ made him a new man. Christ made Paul a new man. Because of Christ, I became a new person. Okay, but how? How exactly did this happen? Well, look at verse 14. I was acting ignorantly in unbelief. Then verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 13, I received this thing called mercy. And here, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Grace is when God gives you something you don't deserve. Okay, did you hear that? Grace is when God gives you something you don't deserve. That's grace. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. The word for overflowed means poured abundantly, showered upon. All right, so have you done the ALS challenge? Anybody challenge you to do that? Did you? Pour a bucket of ice water on your head. This is my favorite ALS challenge of all of them. It's a farmer. Check out his, his video of his challenge. see any ice though so he's got to do it over (laughs) okay let me read that to you again but the grace of our lord overflowed poured abundantly showered from above on me what is it that changed paul what is it that changed william green what is it that needs to happen to change you god needs to shower his undeserved favor upon you from above It needs to drench you. It needs to wash you. It needs to cleanse you. It needs to overflow on you. God has to do that. You can't do that. Write this down. Because of Christ, I became a new person. I received grace and mercy. I received grace and mercy. God's not pouring out His full force of judgment on me. He is pouring out the fullness of his blessing on me. Here's the next one. I learned faith and love. Because of Christ, I became a new person. I received grace and mercy. I learned faith and love. It says here in verse 14, the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He he was hostile toward the truth, but he learned faith in Christ. He was was violently opposed to the church, but he learned love for other Christians. He learned faith in Christ. He learned love for others. This is his now picture. This is what God made him into. There's a then, there's a now. 
Before Christ, I stood against God and apart from God. Because of Christ, I became a new person. Well, he shares his story, and then he gives a charge to us. Look at, uh, look at verse 15. It says in verse 15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So write this down. Here's the third point. I must admit that I need to be saved. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I have to admit that I need to be saved. The Bible says that this saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance. That means this had become kind of a a creedal statement in the early church, meaning it's something that you can rest your eternity on, and you have to accept it if you accept the truth of God. This is worthy of full acceptance. What? Christ Jesus came into the world to do something. Two words, save sinners. Save. Let's talk about the word save. The Bible teaches that your fundamental number one need in life is not for someone to teach you. It's not education. It's not for someone to help you. It's not affirmation. It's not for someone to coach you. It's not, it's not primarily for someone even to heal you. It's for someone to save you. Your greatest need in this life is to be saved. Check this picture out. This is a picture of a woman being saved. She was drowning in a river, and a man, a construction worker walking by, saw it. And he chained himself to a crane and had the crane operator lower him over the river. This is a Pulitzer Prize winning picture. Somebody snapped it. He actually did save her. Now, what if that is you in the water? And what if that man who strapped himself to a crane came down over you, and you're going under, coming back up, going under, sucking down water, and you looked up at him and said, I'm actually good. I mean, I know that there's some, looks like there's some problems in my life, but everyone has problems. So listen, thanks for going out of your way, but um, I'm good here. Uh, I'll just start kicking, and you wouldn't make it. And spiritually speaking, the Bible is saying, that's you in the water. That's you. That's me. The word the Bible uses is a strong word. Christ Jesus came into the world to save. You're in peril without him. You can't get out. You need to be saved. Save, and then it uses the word sinners, to save sinners. Now, it's not like, it's not like this half of the room, you're a bunch of no-good hoodlum sinners, and you're the kind of people Jesus came to save. You guys are I without him. That's, all right, that's not what the verse is doing. It's not lumping humanity into those sinners who need to be saved and then those who are okay. The Bible, in fact, says no one is righteous, not even one. The Bible, in fact, says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you know sin is something that breaks our relationship to God and therefore we can't reach up and grab him. He has to reach down and grab us. Think of sin this way. 
How many of you have uh, ever gotten a virus on your computer before? You ever gotten a virus on your computer? Raise your hand up. You ever get a virus on somebody else's computer on accident? Oops. <laughs> Sorry, honey. <laughs> yeah. How do you know you got a virus? Do you actually go into the coding of your computer and track it down personally? No, I don't know how to do that. Something pops up on my screen. All right. Usually you know there's a problem when you start seeing the ads, right? You start seeing a congratulations or casino.net. Gamble now. Or it's like all these ads, ad after ad after ad. You're like, what is this? What? Uh-oh. And then you're like, I got a virus. This is called adware. It's not as dangerous as the other effects of a virus. It's the first symptom that something's wrong with your computer. All these ads start popping up. You can X them out, but you know every time you go online, there's going to be 10 more of them, right? Listen, the ads are not the problem. The ads are showing that there's a deeper infection in the computer, right? The virus. Now, you can just spend your whole time clicking away at the ads, clicking away at the ads, but, but the ads aren't the problem. The problem is that there's a virus that's infected the computer. And if you don't get rid of the virus, the ads are the least of your worries because there's malware that can get on your computer and start breaking things. There's spyware that can steal your information, right? And you don't see that happening. Are you following me? The greater threat and damage is invisible. The visible part of the threat is not the greatest part of the threat. All right, here's a picture when malware gets on your computer, then what do you see? Warning, warning, warning. Something's not right here. Your computer's telling you something's wrong. Then you start blaming each other while you downloaded. No, you clicked something. No, well, we got to fix it. This is basically what the Bible does for you and me. The Bible throws up a warning screen and says, there's something wrong in your soul. The virus of sin has infected your soul. And the virus of sin that's infected your soul shows up periodically, like the ads, in what you say or where you go or what you do. But that's not ultimately the main problem. That just shows the symptoms. If you trace back that lie, if you trace back that moment you steal something, if you trace back that moment you transgress a moral boundary, you trace it all the way back to an infected heart. The infected heart is what you can't fix. You could work on your lying. You could work on your drinking. You could work on how you talk to your wife. Click in the ads, but you can't get at the infection that sin has in your heart. You can't. And listen, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, people who've been infected with the virus of sin. You were born with the infection. Do you know that? Do you know that sin is passed down from generation to generation? Now, you might say that's unfair. How come I have to pay for what Adam and Eve or what my parents did? Well, listen, you've also downloaded sin yourself. Okay. You were born with it, and you added more downloads to the problem. You and I love our sin. The Bible says men love darkness. So therefore, it is our nature, but it's also our, our choices that condemn us. It's both. We're responsible to acknowledge that there is an infection that we can't get rid of. And that's where Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We have to admit we have a sin problem that we can't fix. And if we admit that, he can save us. Now, there's two kinds of people when you start talking about sin. When I say you have to admit that you be saved, on the one hand, there's people who aren't as concerned about their sin as they should be. 
They'll say things like, well, I'm a pretty good person. I haven't done any of the really bad ones, so God will probably accept me into heaven. These people are hoping God grades grades on the curve, and because I'm better than most other people, I'm going to get into heaven. Now listen, if you follow that logic, what these people are basically saying is, I hope because other people are more sinful than me, God will let me into heaven, meaning what's going to save me? Other people's sin. Does that make sense? Because other people are more sinful, their sin is going to help me get into heaven. That doesn't make sense. God doesn't grade on a curve. Even the smallest sin has roots that are dug all the way down to hell itself. And God can't let any sin into heaven, otherwise it wouldn't be heaven. So we have to understand that we are, that our sin is severe. That our sin has put us on trial in God's courtroom and we can't be given access into heaven based on the fact that we've sinned. Maybe you're downplaying your sin. Well, I'm a pretty good person. I think God will let me in. You're wrong. You've got an infection and it's out of control. Now, on the other hand, there's people who are well aware of their sin. And and maybe based on what you've done, based on what you've said, based on where you've been, you truly have concluded in your heart that God would never save you. You're too sinful. You would tell yourself, You've gone past the point of no return. God could not, would not, ever save you. Maybe that's you. Uh, Fourteen years ago when my grandpa was dying in the hospital, I went and visited him. And uh, I was in college. I was a new believer. I just wanted to tell him about Jesus. I said, Gramps, where are you at with all this stuff? He was known for being angry when the topic came up and, and very against it. We didn't quite know why. And finally, he coughed it up. Finally, he just closed his eyes. This is a guy who had fought in World War II liberated prison camps, gone up through Italy and then through France into Germany. And he finally closed his eyes and he said, God could never forgive me. God could never forgive me. And I said, you're wrong. You're wrong. He could forgive you. How do I know that? Because the Apostle Paul here says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He saw himself as the captain of the sinners, as the chief of them all, as the worst. He killed the first group of Christians. What what have you done? Are you violent? Are you a liar? Have you been unfaithful to your spouse? You failed as a parent? You cursed God in your heart? Tell you what you didn't do. You didn't go house to house in the very first days of Christianity and murder Christians. And guess what? The guy who did, he got saved. What does that mean to you? It means it says here, but I receive mercy, verse 16, for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Listen, Jesus saved this monster, Paul, so that we can look at him as an example and Jesus can say, hey, if I did that to him, I'll do it to you. I'll do it to you. Here's the last thing you can write down. I must admit that I need to be saved. And here's the last thing. God has been patient, so I must respond now. It says here that I receive mercy for this reason that in me is the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He's being patient. He's being patient with you. 
he displayed his patience with Paul. Who is it in your life? What is it in your life that tests your patience? Is it your youngest child? Is it your oldest sibling? Is it your coworker? Who is it that tests your patience? Like, you're doing pretty good with most of the people in your life. But when it's a call from this person, you're like, ah, this is going to be a hard one. I mean, they test your patience. Like, no, is it the dog? He peed on the couch again. I mean, what tests your patience? Because if God made a list of what tests his patience, you'd be on it. Got a few names of things that test my patience. You want to see it? You're on it. Tests your patience. God saves Paul so that Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example. To who? To us. Because he's being patient with us. I'm being patient with you. Well, I don't know. I've done pretty well in life. Maybe God's happy with me. He's being patient with you. The Bible says that God's being patient, willing that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance and get eternal life. But don't mistake his patience for endorsement because his judgment will come. God's love is eternal. God's wrath is eternal. His patience is for now. It's temporary. It's going to run out. So listen, let me just say this. The Bible goes on to say, to the king of ages... Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God exists beyond the fluctuations of time, John Stott says, beyond the ravages of decay and death. The Bible says he's invisible. You can't find him without help. He's immortal. He'll be around forever. You can't find him without help. And the Bible in the New Testament says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Meaning, if you want to know God, if you want God to be real and to do something in your life, you must believe in Jesus Christ. It says here that Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Jesus is the only one who can help you know God now and forever. Jesus must save you first if you truly are going to have a before and an after story, and if you're going to be able to live in this life with hope of heaven. So what's your story? Do you have a story? Do you have a before story that describes how you stood apart from God and opposed to Him? Do you have an after story? Can you show fruit in your life of how you became a different person? It can happen when you're six. It can happen when you're 16. It can happen when you're 96. But there has to be a time in your life where you look at your before picture and you say, I need a Savior. I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. Then you have to believe the truth about Jesus Christ and then He pours out His mercy upon you and you become a different person. Do you have a story? Sometimes when I ask people to tell me their story, it's really foggy. They'll say, yeah, when I was a kid, I prayed something, I think, I walked down an aisle. And it's like, as, it's like as memorable as a mosquito bite. Like, yeah, something once brushed on me, I think. I'm scared for those people. It's so f- passive and, and forgettable, and I don't think they truly have a Savior. If you don't have a story, maybe you don't have a Savior. But you can. I want to give you a chance right now to share your story. Uh, grab your bulletins and look in your bulletins. We put cards in there. And these cards will give you an opportunity to write out your story. They've got a cross on them. 
And listen, there's pens in the pew back in front of you. I want everyone to take a moment right now to jot down your story. And then listen, in a few minutes, we're going to have people come up front with microphones, and you're going to be able to, if you want to, you're going to be able to come up front and read your story to the church. All right? Be brave. But I want you to take a moment right now and write out your story. Let me read to you a few examples of how this works just to give you an idea of what they sound like. Before Christ, I was raised in a Christian home but had not made Christ personal. How Jesus changed me, he became my savior and friend walking alongside of me through thick and thin. These are real people from our church. Before Christ, I was a good person trying to do more good and earn approval. How Jesus changed me, he made me realize he saved me, he loves me, and chose me despite my inadequacies. Before Christ, I was rebellious and and doing my own thing. I lived how I wanted. But then Jesus bought me with his life, washed me, and changed me, and now I live for him. Last one. Before Christ, I was dead in my sin, hopeless, and even tried to take my own life. How Jesus changed me. A friend told me about Jesus and his love for me at the cross, and I gave my life to him, and now I'm free. Hey, I don't know what your story is, but I want you to take a second right now, write out a sentence or two on your before, a sentence or two on how Jesus changed you. Take me to when and how he actually changed you and saved you. Write it down right now, and then we'll give you a chance to share it in a few minutes. Go ahead. If you need a card, our ushers have them, by the way. If you forgot to get one on the way in, just hold up your hand, and our ushers will bring you a card. We want everyone to fill them out because we're going to collect them at the end. Okay, so everybody fill one out. Just put up your hand if you need a card, and the ushers will bring you one right now.
I know there's extroverts in the room who any chance they get love to share about themselves with an audience, and I'm sure you'll come. But hey, if you're the kind of person who has never done anything like this in your life, I just want to call you to be brave also. But let's have a few people right now on each side. Stand up, come up front. This is your chance to share your story. Right now, stand up, bring your card, come up front, either side, and let's let some people share their stories. Come on, don't be shy. Where are the men? Come on, men. Jesus. I was an outcast. I was the prodigal daughter that stayed home and took care of the family. And then I was the prodigal who went out and gave myself away and ate with the pigs. And he told me he could heal me and forgive me. And he has. And he gave me new life. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Before Christ, I took everything for granted. My ex-fiancé left me of nine years. I lost everything, including myself, and tried to end my life. I just recently left a shelter for domestic violence and abuse. When I realized Jesus saved me, I just felt it, and I don't know, I'm a different person. Thank you. I uh, knew God's love growing up, um, but I decided that I could run my own life better than he was running it, and fell into sin, uh, and uh, wrecked my life, um, and I, when I finally surrendered my life to Christ, um, he gave me the peace to trust him to run it better than I could ever dream, and it cared for me forever. Before Christ, I was a lawbreaker and unable to stop sinning over and over and over, and I, I knew I was deserving of being sent straight to hell. And how Jesus changed me by he became the sacrifice for my sin on the cross. And then he gave me the strength to resist my temptation. Before Christ, I was searching unsure in all the wrong places, rebelling against God in my words and actions, and felt I had fallen too far to be saved. Um, How Jesus changed me, I am secure in Christ, trusting in him alone to save me forgiven of my sin and looking to the Bible as the guidebook for my life. Before Christ, I lived my life aimlessly and without purpose. Now with Christ, I aim to please Him every day. Before Christ, I was lost. I was living my life for myself, and uh, I was turning to drugs, alcohol, um, pornography, and 
when I met Jesus, I came across Luke 9, 24. It said, for whoever tries to save their own life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And I realized in that moment, I was trying to do everything on my own. And when I gave it up for Christ, he saved me. And I started living for him and not myself. Before Christ, I was just mired in sin, uh, focused only on myself and uh, hurtful to others. And then uh, I accepted Christ as my Savior, and he changed me by forgiving me. Um, I was focused now on uh, drawing closer to Jesus as my Savior and called to serve others. Before Christ, my life was a mess. I lived in addiction, a pornography, and many other ways of sin. This candy coat of sin messed up my life, but now I've given my life to Christ, and Christ really, really is part of my life. But I know, without a doubt, God can set anyone free. Um, and I thank Jesus for coming into my life, for saving my sin, for saving my soul from my sins. So, amen. The Bible says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Uh, and honestly, maybe maybe you're looking down at the sheet and you're saying, I don't have a story. I don't have a story. Um, and I'll just never forget in college when I started going to church, uh, I knew I didn't have a story. Knew as I was lying awake at night, looking up at the ceiling, I knew that I probably wasn't going to heaven. And I'll never forget when I just knelt down in my own bedroom next to my bed and I said, Jesus, I now believe who you were. I believe what you did. And I'm calling upon you to come into my life and save me. Maybe God wants your story to be today and right now. Maybe God brought you here so that your story is, I walked through the doors of a church. I heard the great news that Christ saves sinners and I turned my life over to him. Maybe right now is your story. I want to give you a chance to pray with me in response to what you've heard right now. Let's all close our eyes. Let's bow our hearts. Let's pray. Jesus, I know like me, there are many who don't have the hope yet that you have transformed them. They are still riddled with sin and guilt. They don't think that they're good enough. They don't think that they can be loved by you. And so I just pray that based on what they heard today, pray that they would call upon you as Savior and Lord, believing that you came into the world to save sinners. Even the foremost, the chief of sinners, you saved. Lord, they may want to pray along in their own hearts with me right now saying this, Father in heaven, I'm guilty of sin and I've broken your law. I don't deserve your love, but thank you that you are willing to shower your mercy upon me. I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me of all of my sins. I ask you to transform me and make me brand new. I ask you to give me the hope that I will be in heaven forever with you. And give me the joy of walking with you every day. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.